So the college professor says, I want everybody prepared next week. We meet because you're going to have an exam. So the kid studies super hard, comes to class, prepared to take the exam. And the class is lined with pictures of birds' feet all around the class. And the kid walks up to the professor and says, what is all this? He says, well, that's the exam. You're supposed to identify these, these birds by their feet. He says, nobody can do this. I'm not taking this exam. He says, oh, yeah, you're taking it. He says, no, I'm not. He says, well, then you're going to fail. What's your name? Kid slips off his shoes, shows his feet to the teacher, and says, you tell me. <laughs> Last week, we uh, looked at a proposal that David had for a test for Saul. Saul had become a madman to David, having attempted to actually take David's life three different times. But his son Jonathan had talked to Saul, and, who was the king, and he had, he had relented and said that he, would, he wouldn't do that. He wouldn't try to kill David, and that he had a change of heart. But David still was very fearful of his life, and how is he supposed to believe that suddenly Saul is a changed man? So he proposes a test to his good friend Jonathan, who just happens to be the son of the king. Jonathan is an unusual young man because he is the heir apparent to become king in his father's place someday. But Jonathan seems to have an understanding from God that he's not going to be king. David is going to be king, and he's accepted that. Not only has he accepted it, he's endorsed it. So the plan is that there is a, a special festival that's coming up. It coincides with the new moon. And David will not be present. Jonathan will explain to his father why David is not there, that he has chosen to go home and visit his family for yearly sacrifice. It will be the king's reaction that will be the test. Will he have a good disposition toward David, or will he become angry and, and have a rage the way he has done and want David killed? So David wants to know this. Jonathan has agreed. And so we are now going to look at this test. Let's begin. 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 24. So David hid in the field, and when the new moon feast came, the king sat down to eat. He sat in his customary place by the wall opposite Jonathan, and Abner sat next to Saul, but David's place was empty. So Saul has his usual place. He sits. We all usually do. Some people actually get angry when you sit in their place in church, but we all like to do things in a routine way. So Saul sits with his back toward the wall. Next to him is Abner, his commander of his army. And right across the table is his son, Jonathan. But the seat where David sits is empty. So Saul makes an assumption that he doesn't show any anger or any, any perplexity. It says in verse 26, Saul said nothing that day, for he thought something must have happened to David to make him ceremonially unclean. Surely he is unclean. Since this is a religious feast, something could have happened where David would have would had to follow ceremony cleansing, and he would be free to be there the next night. This is the, uh, the next day. This is the assumption of Saul. Saul seems oblivious to the fact that if you try to kill somebody three times in a row with a spear, they might not want to be around you. That 
doesn't seem to occur to Saul because Saul is the is the king, the dictator, and even if he's tried to kill you three times, you will at least ask permission to not be there. This is the way Saul thinks. But day two is another story. So day two happens exactly the same way, and there's an empty seat. But the next day, the second day of the month, David's place was empty again. Then Saul said to his son Jonathan, why hasn't the son of Jesse come to the mill either yesterday or today? Now, did you have one of those parents when they got angry, they changed your name? They called you by your last name, your middle name, or some name they only used when they were angry? So Saul is definitely not calling David by his name. He's calling him son of Jesse. It'd be like saying Brooks, Aaron Wright. Uh, you're, you're intimately close, but you're not using that first name. So look at 27 again. Why hasn't the son of Jesse come to the mill either yesterday or today? It's as if Saul is acting as if he doesn't even know this David. He has no place of importance. Who is this son of Jesse? It's a contradiction, of course, because if he wasn't somebody, if he wasn't known to the king, he wouldn't have a seat at the table with the king. He is the king's son-in-law, and he is the commander in his army, one of the chief commanders. But people will be full of contradictions when they refuse to confront the truth about themselves. And this is a picture of Saul. So Saul, since he's asked the question, why isn't David here? Or as Saul says, why isn't the son of Jesse here? Saul gives the explanation. David had actually originally crafted this explanation and given it to Jonathan. Jonathan adds another feature to it. Jonathan answered, David earnestly asked me for permission to go to Bethlehem, he said. Let me go because our family is observing a sacrifice in the town. And here's the feature that Jonathan adds. My brother has ordered me to be there. Maybe Jonathan thought that made more sense to throw the brother in. If I have found favor in your eyes, let me get away to see my brothers. That is why he has not come to the king's table. So Jonathan tries to make the exclamation as believable possible. Jonathan knows where David is. He's out in the field, very close to where Saul is. But the test has definitely proven Saul's attitude because Saul has a reaction of rage and his anger is frightening toward Jonathan. As David had set up this test, Saul would either have said, shown goodwill toward David, or he would go into this anger and rage and prove what his attitude was toward David. But Jonathan has chosen David, and Saul has realized that. That's the cause for this anger. Saul's anger flared up at Jonathan, and he said to him, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman, don't I know that you have sided with the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of the mother who bore you? Now, there's something very insightful here, and Saul acknowledges that he knows it. Don't you know, I know you have sided with David. And he calls him the son of a perverse woman. In reality, he's the son of a perverse man, a rebellious man, stubborn and rebellious, but Saul would never admit that. Jonathan has not kept secret his regard for David, his esteem. He's even convinced his father 
of David's intentions, his loyalty, his faithfulness. And the last time he did that, Saul acknowledged it and made an oath that he would not try to harm David. So they are testing whether that was a true oath or whether Saul would go back on his word. And clearly the test has proven Saul would. The reason there's going to be so much anger here at Jonathan is because Jonathan has rejected Saul and his kingdom, and he has chosen David. We're going to see that this, is, uh, this message has parallels. It has great lessons for us, because when you choose Christ, and you truly put him above everything else in your life, there are going to be people, even in your own family, that are going to be angry with you. Because they're not going to understand your commitment to Christ. People who have completely committed their life to Christ have lost family, family members because they didn't understand this commitment of Christ. This is what happened to Jonathan. In verse 31, as long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. This is true. But Saul seems to be remembering some words that were spoken to him. Maybe faintly coming back to him, words of Samuel. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of this people. It seems the realization to Saul that, that Saul is realizing this is the man that God has sought out. He seems to leave out the part that Samuel said to him, the reason that God had abandoned him, because you have not kept the Lord's command. You have done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You have not kept command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. Saul seems to leave out that part in his thinking. The reason for his failure is not David. It's not Jonathan. It's himself. Because he refused to obey the Lord's command. But it's easy to blame others and dismiss your own shortcomings, as Saul was notoriously famous for doing. He says, he must die. Verse 31. Now send someone to bring him to me, for he must die. So Saul gives this command to Jonathan. You give a command. You know where he is. I know you do. Bring him here. I want him dead. So Jonathan at this point faces a terrible choice. Not only is his father king, but he has this intimidating wrath, this domineering there's something about a very domineering person who can actually intimidate you and make you follow their will, even though that's not what you want to do. But Jonathan has made his choice. His choice is for David, and he will not give in to the intimidation of his father. In fact, he defends David, which would seem like a very dangerous thing to do when the king is enraged. But he says in verse 32, why should he be put to death? What has he done? two questions. He asked both of these questions to, to the king, and Saul will not answer either one of them. Why should he be put to death? What has he done? Jonathan is being forced here to choose between David and his father, the king. He's using David's words because David has said to Jonathan in their previous conversation, what have I done? So Jonathan conveys to Saul, what has he done? Why should he be put to death? 
what he has done is clearly known to Saul and to everyone in Israel. He killed the giant, Goliath. He has served as a very effective commander and fighting their number one enemy, the Philistines. He has been faithful to Saul in every way. But Saul sees him as a threat to his throne. He has shown enormous jealousy toward David because David has what he wants most, God's blessing, but he's not willing to do what he needs to to have God's blessings in his life. So he wants to remove David because David is a reminder of what he doesn't have in his own life. In verse 33, instead of answering those two questions, why should he die? What has he done wrong? Saul answers with a rage. But Saul hurled his spear at him to kill him. Now that same spear hurled by the same hand was thrown three times at David and now at Jonathan, his own son because Jonathan has chosen David. So the wrath is really at David. Jonathan just happens to be in the way. So the spear is for David, but if you're going to defend David, then you're going to take the spear. <laughs> you talk about the understatement. The greatest understatement in the Bible is in verse 33. Then Jonathan knew that his father intended to kill him. Yeah, he sees the spear sticking in the wall. I think he wants to kill me. That is what you call an understatement. It's so important here that we understand that that attack demonstrates Saul's hatred for David. And so many times attacks come to Christians. It's not actually against you. It's because you have embraced Christ. And it will be more and more of this way. So much of the hatred against Israel is because they have embraced Jehovah God. Not that all Jews are completely serving God, but they are a monotheistic people who have remained monotheistic, just one God, and their existence reminds the world of a reality and a morality. Saul demonstrates that hatred by people who refuse to obey God. Jonathan's anger, he becomes angry right now, refusing to be intimidated by his father, regardless of whatever danger it represents to himself. Jonathan got up from the table in fierce anger on that second day of the feast. He did not eat because he was grieved at his father's shameful treatment of David. He's deeply hurt that his father refuses to use any logic to answer those questions, because they, they can't be answered. Now, the rest of this chapter and what we deal with is about David's departure, because this is where David will begin a 13-year journey as a fugitive. He will make no attempt to remove Saul from the throne, even though he has the assurance from God and from Jonathan that he will be king. But David will not do it by his hand, neither will Jonathan make any attempt it will be God. But for 13 long years, David is going to be a fugitive, and the journey begins here. But before it begins, there's a, there's a meeting between Jonathan and David. They have prearranged this meeting because Jonathan does not know how things will go, if he will ever have the opportunity to speak in person to David. So David is hiding in the field, and they have prearranged this code. He's going to come out, and he's going to shoot three arrows. If he says, as he sends a young boy to, to collect the arrow, if he says to him, the arrows are on this side of you, 
That is the code. It's safe, David. You can come back. Saul, there is no anger. You can come back. But if he says, the arrow is beyond you to the boy, that's the code to David that you have to flee. Your life is truly in danger. In the morning, Jonathan went out to the field for his meeting with David. He had a small boy with him, and he said to the boy, run and find the arrows I shoot. As the boy ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. When the boy came to the place where Jonathan's arrow had fallen, Jonathan called out after him, isn't the arrow beyond you? Then he shouted, hurry, go quickly, don't stop. The boy picked up the arrow and returned to his master. The boy knew nothing about all this, only Jonathan and David knew. So the message had been conveyed. Then Jonathan gave his weapons to the boy and said, go carry them back to town. What takes place here is one of the most phenomenal, amazing meetings between two people who, who love and respect each other with great admiration, and yet they will be separated. They never know if they will ever meet again. They do meet one more time, several years later, a very significant meeting. But it's a friendship that can never actually take place because of the both share this enmity with Saul. After the boy had gone, David got up from the south side of the stone and bowed down before Jonathan three times with his face to the ground. They kissed each other and wept, but David wept the most. David still sees himself as subordinate to Jonathan. It's an amazing thing about David, this humility, because he has been chosen king, anointed king. Jonathan has, has reaffirmed that. But David comports himself as a subordinate, bowing to Jonathan. They have this mutual recognition of their positions. Jonathan has this amazing ability to see the future, even better than David has. He knows he will one day be the future king. They just don't know when that's going to happen. But there's lots of tears here, because they're tears of a farewell. But the Bible makes it very clear. The writer says, David grieved the most. There were more tears from David. These two friends weep because their departure is necessary. This hostility of Saul is forcing their departure. They neither one want it. They neither one want to harm Saul or harm anything about him. But it's Saul's stubborn, hard heart that has brought about this. Jonathan has a final word for David. Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, for we have sworn friendship with each other in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord is witness between you and me and between your descendants and my descendants forever. Then David left, and Jonathan went back to the town. Now, Jonathan becomes a model of what a disciple of Christ is all about. The ability to choose between any and every priority, choose Christ over all of those priorities, and make Christ the most important thing. Jesus said, speaking about our commitment to follow him, he said, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. That is true of Jonathan. The reason Jonathan is hated, because Saul hates David. And the world will hate us because it hated Christ, because we embrace Christ, we follow Christ. Jesus said, remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. 
When Jesus said these following words that I'm about to read, he very well could have been thinking of Jonathan. If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. The verse is not speaking about hating your mother or father. It's speaking about priority. It's not a lesson on family relationships. It's speaking about the willingness to put Christ first If your family is demanding of you that you serve them over Christ and you're forced to make that choice, then Christ says, you're going to be my disciple, you're going to choose me over them. Jonathan is that example. He did not want to disobey his father. He did not want to disrespect his father. But if you're going to force me to choose between you, father, and David, I'll choose David. This is exactly what each of us are asked to do serving Christ. Jesus said in the same chapter in Luke chapter 14 in the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. That is the ultimate requirement for following Christ, that he is the one who is in first place in our lives. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life. Such a person cannot be a disciple. That could be said of Jonathan very clearly. See, the real test of life is what we do when things do not turn out the way we want. So David has this plan and Jonathan agree. Let's let's hope and let's pray that Saul will keep his promise. He has promised that he will not try to kill you, that he will have no animosity toward you, David. That's how they want it to work out, that David can remain there as Saul's son-in-law and commander in the army and the friend of David. So this is is a plan that I want. I want it to work out this way. But it doesn't work out that way. And there are tears, tears from Jonathan, tears from David. So when it doesn't work out the way we hope, will we become angry like Saul? start throwing spears, blaming others? Will we become angry at God and lose touch with him? Will we become cynical and bitter? The truth is that out of the disappointment and the hurt, God still works. And in the 13 years, God will work in David's life in amazing ways. If David had received the throne when he was in his teenage years or his young 20s, David would have undoubtedly become another Saul. God was preparing him for that moment, and those 13 years would humble David's life and make of him the psalmist and the man that he was. The truth is that out of that disappointment and hurt, God always has a plan. He can grow us and mature us, but our willingness to choose him is the bottom line. For Jonathan to choose David over his father had to be gut-wrenching, but he did it. This was not a choice of preference, but a choice of good over evil of God over the world. But God met Jonathan and David in their sorrow. It's not how they wanted things to work out, but in their disappointment, God worked. And God will work in your disappointment in the things that have not worked out the way you wanted them to, or the things that will not work out because life is always about things not working out the way we hope or the way we plan.
But the one thing that never changes is God. But if we learn to choose Him over every other option, God will never fail you. He will always be there for you. The problem happens is when we fail to choose Him. And when Jesus says, if you love your father or your mother or your girlfriend or your boyfriend or your job or your car, the verse is describing priorities. If God is not your priority in life, Jesus says, I really don't want you to be my disciple. All right? Just saying, if you want to be my disciple, you got to choose me every time, even when things don't work out. Those are his disciples, and they are a special lot of people.